listening to the Game on Glio podcast with Shannon Traphagen. Welcome to Game on Glio, the podcast providing hope, inspiration, education, and real conversations around the difficult journeys of being diagnosed with brain cancer, including glioblastoma. I'm your host, Shannon Traphagen. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Game on Glio Podcast or visit our website, The Game on Glio Podcast, for insights and guest snapshots. If you enjoy our show, please consider writing a review. Also, share us with a friend. This podcast is in partnership with Brains for the Cure. Learn more at brainsforthecure.org. Clinical trials are a key research tool for advancing patient care. They're also important for discovering new treatments for diseases, as well as new ways to detect disease and reduce the chance of developing the disease. Clinical trials help doctors decide side effects, and if those side effects are acceptable, weighed against possible treatment benefits. While clinical trials are important, the choice to participate is a personal one and very much depends on your unique situation. When Mike was first diagnosed, we were inundated with information. It can be really difficult to decide what avenue to take, what direction to go in. There was so much information thrown at us. But when you're first diagnosed with a disease like brain cancer, you're trying to wrap your head around the diagnosis itself, especially when it's glioblastoma, let alone trying to figure out what treatments are best, what doctors are best, what holistic care is best, what nutrition plan is best, who to speak with, what universities to touch base with, what specialists are out there in other states, in other countries. Do I stay close to home? Do I not? There's just so many questions you start to ask. The one thing that was really difficult for me in helping Mike receive treatment was trying to find the best information without overloading myself or getting into the weeds with what his diagnosis meant. Meaning that when I got online to look up research, to find studies, to look up treatment options. I had to make sure that I also wasn't coming across information on WebMD or Google that gave me too much information about life expectancy, about the downsides of the treatment of his disease. Whether you're the patient, the caregiver, a family member, it can be really difficult to not look that information up. It was very difficult for me to try to ignore the statistics, and just find what I needed to find. For a lot of people, because of the job that I do, because of the work that I do, I was able to put on blinders and to really just focus in on what I needed to find. But for a lot of people, that can be very difficult. Clinical trials are a part of this treatment. It's a part of finding avenues and new ways to treat brain cancer. But there's so many clinical trials out there, it really can get overwhelming. There is just so much information. 
And that's a great thing, but where to look and what to do and how to find the most appropriate fit, that can be overwhelming. And sometimes your oncologist, your neurosurgeon may not always have the answer. They may, but you might also have information that they don't have. And you always have to have a conversation with the staff and the team that you're working with. But at the end of the day, and this is something that I always told Mike, they are on our team, our oncologist, our neurosurgeon, our holistic practitioner, our nutritionist or dietitian. They're on our team. They are a part of who makes up how we help him succeed. We're not being interviewed by them to work with them. They're being interviewed by us to work with us. So whether they have information that helps or whether we had information that may have helped, they needed to be open to hearing our thoughts and a direction that we may want to go in. That's vital. And it's important for anybody who is on this path right now to remember that. They're all a part of your team. And you can ask whatever questions you want. You can bring forth whatever information comes across your plate, something that you want to look into. And clinical trials are a big part of that. Today's guest, Dr. Priya Kumtaker, talks about the value of clinical trials, the steps in navigating them, and her work in translational science and its role in clinical trials. She also has an exciting phase zero study that she is currently leading that could give new hope to brain cancer treatments. I'll talk to her next after a brief word from her partner. When my mom was diagnosed with a brain tumor, I didn't know where to turn. How do I prepare myself as a caregiver? As a 22-year survivor, I've talked to hundreds of patients, mostly just listening and answering questions. I've visited a dozen of websites, some good, but none I thought truly met the needs of survivors and caregivers. I found what I was looking for in Brains for the Cure. This is a resource I've been looking for. Not only did I learn a lot, but it also reassured both of us that we are not alone. With resources and news from Brains for the Cure, patients and caregivers can advocate for themselves and become decision makers in their own journeys, learn about treatment options and clinical trials, and connect with other patients, survivors, caregivers, and medical professionals through our ambassadors, online support groups, and personal stories. Find out more at www.brainsforthecure.org. Welcome back, and thank you for joining us here at the Game on Glio podcast. I'm joined now by Dr. Priya Kumtaker. She's an associate professor of neurology and medicine at Northwestern's Feinberg School of Medicine, with a focus in translational research of solid tumors. Much of her work focuses on treating primary brain tumors, such as gliomas and meningiomas. She is the principal lead for a phase zero study with recurrent GBM patients for a drug that is showing promise on killing brain cancer cells. Dr. Kuntaker, thank you so much for joining us today. We will dive into some of the work that you're currently doing, but I'd love for you to tell our listeners a little bit more about you, uh, where you work, and um, what led you to it. Great. Thank you so much for having me, Shannon. So I am a neuro-oncologist 
So that's a neurologist trained uh, oncologist. So I did my residency in neurology. Then I did further training in oncology. So specifically for brain tumors, so primary brain tumors and brain metastases. I live in Chicago and I work at Northwestern Memorial Hospital and at Northwestern University. What led you into the work that you're currently doing now? What led you into being an associate professor, the clinical research side of things, specifically in translational science versus surgical and what I would say field work? I would love for you to tell our listeners a little bit more about that side of things. So yeah, I would say for for starters, these different categories like teaching or clinical work or working in the hospital or having a clinic, they're not disparate activities. So as a physician and working in academics, you sort of build it and your career and your day-to-day or what I like to refer to more as my week-to-week because my days can look quite different. Uh, You can build it so that your job can reflect all of that. So I really, what I really like about my job is that I get to do number one patient care, which is you know, the whole reason I went into the field of neuro-oncology, it's, it's my heart, it's my heartbeat, and it's what, mm. what drives me. But then what I really love is that I can do all the other things that then lead to better patient care. So things like clinical trials that can lead to better treatment outcomes and just better outcomes, period, for our patients. Things like teaching so that we are, you know, yielding better patient outcomes for the next generation and sort of passing along any information that we know and any teaching and experience that we have to the next Mm -hmm. generation of trainees. So, so these things of, you know, these, what seem like separate buckets of teaching, working in the clinic, doing clinical trials and research, what seem like very different buckets really in my life are, are really complementary to one another. Wow. I, not only do I love that answer, but I love your passion for neuro-oncology. And that is very difficult to find in this world, especially because of the uh, difficultness of treating some of these, um, these cancers. I'm really curious, what led you to focus on brain cancer and really led you into neuro-oncology. I mean, it's, it can be a very grueling field. And I'm curious to what led you to this and, and have such a passion for helping treat brain cancer? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And my simplest answer is really, it was, it was like a magnetic pull. You know, when I was a medical student, I wasn't even aware that the field existed and that the specialty within neurology existed. I came to Northwestern for my residency bright-eyed and ready to face a lot of other really important neurologic diseases like stroke and epilepsy. And Mm. in my training, in fact, on my first day of my training, I was in the neuro-oncology clinic and immediately felt a grab. Um, And it it was really the patients. I mean, um, I say it in jest, but also true. I mean, I really do feel like we have the best patients in the world. Um, I'm sure every doctor feels that way, but I genuinely, <laughs> I, genuinely um, I, I joke about it, but I, in my heart, it, it's real. And that was really the pull for me as a trainee. And ultimately, despite being interested in various neurological uh, syndromes and diseases that pulled me into neurology in the first place, 
I couldn't not do neuro-oncology. It was, it mm. was a pull and something I would have regretted if I didn't go into knowing full well that just as you said, you know, it can get, it can get heavy at times. Uh, but mm-hmm. I just feel fortunate that I can do it and that I'm given the opportunity to do it. It's an opportunity, not only that is given to me from a job or working or career perspective, but more that every day I feel lucky that my patients and really importantly, their families open a door and let me into some of the most intimate kind of crevices of their lives. And and that's a gift. And, And I get to receive that gift in this role and in this job. That's amazing to hear. Um, it really can be a very dark and difficult path for the patients and the caregivers and their families. So to see it through your eyes that way and to hear you explain it in that way is really uplifting. Um, for somebody who's lost somebody to brain cancer, my husband, to hear how you describe how you work with the patients, it there's, there's a piece about it and I, I, it's hard to explain, but as you were talking, I'm like, wow, I, I wish I had known you back when he was alive, you know, like that would have been great. I would love for you to explain to our listeners the difference between the clinical research avenue and it can be so complex and so hard to navigate. And, and what you focus on is science translational medicine. And I'm really curious to hear what that means compared to other clinical research and trials. It's an excellent question. So basically, in the many you know centuries of research in science, there has historically been almost a divide between what happens in the basic lab and, and the research that happens on the scientific lab front mm-hmm. versus what happens in the clinic. And what translational science and translational medicine has done over the past few decades where it's been truly named as translational medicine is it serves as a bridge between the lab and the clinic. And so I view my job as sort of a bridge between the lab and the clinic. So bringing these discoveries that really smart lab scientists bring to life in their labs, and how do we translate that? How do we bridge that? to actually have our patients benefit from it and to actually start to use it in the clinical setting where we're able to make an impact with our patients. That makes a lot of sense. And it draws a really clear picture on what those words actually mean. One of the studies that you are the principal lead on currently and is showing a lot of promise is the study that focuses on novel spherical nuclei acid drug, it's, I believe that the abbreviation is SNA. I'm curious to, to learn how did, how did you stumble upon this avenue? Number one, what does it mean for the work that's being done within it? And, and what is the purpose of it? What is it actually doing uh, for clients with brain cancer? Yeah. So this is decades of work that have been done by researchers at Northwestern in the lab. So this is Dr. Alex Stieg and many others at Northwestern University as part of the Nanotherapeutics Institute. They were working for many years on nanotherapeutics, which is exactly as it sounds. So nano meaning just really tiny Mm -hmm. um, and therapies. And the reason why that size matters is because we have a challenge getting therapeutics to the brain because of something called the blood brain barrier. Yep. And because of the size of this compound, 
it is able to sneak through that barrier and then exert its effects where it needs to, which is ideally in the brain tumor. Okay. So for many years, these scientists were working on this at Northwestern. What the compound looks like, so this spherical nucleic acid or SNAs, and the name specifically of this compound is NU0129. Okay. Imagine um, like a tiny gold ball as a core glued all around to it are little curls, whether you look, think of them as slinkies glued to it, tightly, tightly packed around that ball. Mm-hmm. And so what that does is then that small compound, NU0129, was designed to be able to cross the blood-brain barrier and specifically act upon different genes in the brain tumor. Wow. So how is it delivered? Yeah, it's an IV drug. On the clinical trial, we delivered it as a one-time IV dose prior to their surgeries. Would this be for patients that are recurrent glioblastoma, recurrent other brain cancers? Would this be something that could be used for initial diagnosis of brain cancer? So the short answer is all of the above. Oh. Because it can be used in you know, first line, second line, third line, so forth, and even potential for use outside of gliomas even, or glioblastoma even. But the idea of us giving it pre-surgically, and the reason we designed our study the way that we did, is patients who had recurrent glioblastoma who were slated to get surgery anyways for, for standard of care reasons, they were given this drug in advance. And then 24 hours later, they went on to get their surgery. And the reason we did that was for one to see, did the drug reach the tumor, right? Did it get past that blood brain barrier? Did the drug get to where we wanted it to go? Okay. So after you took out the tumor tissue, we were able to look at it using various methodologies to see whether drug got to the tumor. And then number two, we also took that tissue and looked at it in various different, again, various different methods to see, did the drug have its intended effect? Interesting. And so what are the results thus far? So we actually just recently published the results of this study. And what we found is number one, and very importantly for our patients and quality of life, that it was a well-tolerated drug. We gave it in, in pretty low doses because for a phase zero study, which is this for this study was first in human. Mm-hmm. So at these low doses, we didn't see toxicity. And even at these low doses, what was really important, number two, is that we saw that drug reach the tumor. Really? Yeah. So it's breaking that blood-brain barrier. Exactly. And then number three, we found that it exerted the biologic effects that we wanted, which was this word called apoptosis. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but very familiar with that word. So it basically, you know, to make a long story short, elevated apoptotic markers. So it pushed the pathways that we wanted to see pushed that caused that programmed cell death. And for anyone who's listening, uh, that's what apoptosis is. It's programmed cell death in cancer cells. And so basically what you're saying is that this phase zero study, the results of what you guys are seeing thus far is that you are seeing some programmed cell death, that it is reaching these cancer cells and killing these cancer cells off. Exactly. Wow. What are the next steps with a study like this? Right. So right now we are in discussion with how to, how to 
expand where we use this drug. Okay. So the next steps would be ideally to have a phase one study. And I don't know how much the listeners know about this, but there are multiple phases in studies for drug development. Mm-hmm. For example, you know, we started with a phase zero, which is first in human. And now we're going to take the next step and start to plan our phase one study. And in that study, we might combine it, for example, with radiation. And then we also will look to push the dose a little more. So gradually increase the dose. Okay. With the hopes that, you know, we get to the dosing that we see worked in the preclinical setting on our animal studies and uh, non-human primates. So that's like monkey studies. So we want to get closer to those dosing so we can really give a fair evaluation of the efficacy of the drug, you know, make sure that it works. Okay. What would be the ultimate goal for this? What are you and your team hoping to achieve, hoping to see um, as this continues to push into new phases? Right. So the, the goal is different at each phase. So for the phase one, the goal is to have the right dose achieved that is minimal toxicity for our patients with maximal effect towards the tumor. So, you know, we want to fight the tumor, not the patient. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the earlier wish. But the real, you know, pinnacle of our hopes are that we can impact patient care and patient outcome with this drug in the future for patients with glioblastoma. And that's a very big deal, um, especially given that glioblastoma is extremely hard to treat and life expectancy uh, is not always the greatest. So this could have a huge impact um, on future treatment of brain cancers such as glioblastoma. We're certainly hopeful. Now, is this something where as this continues to go along and because it's in such early stages, there might not be an answer for this yet, but we know um, all of us who you know have been in the weeds with brain cancer, uh, whether from a clinical, scientific, um, or patient caregiver perspective, that brain cancer doesn't just affect adults. Uh, there is pediatric brain cancer as well. Is this something that might be utilized with pediatric brain cancer patients? Yeah, absolutely. I don't see a reason why it couldn't be in the future. Okay. You would touched on earlier the different phases of clinical trials and and kind of how they work. Can you dive into that a little bit more? Just explain kind of how this process goes along, how long it can take sometimes because it can be really hard to navigate where a clinical trial is and what that means and who gets access to it. So for our listeners, if you could just kind of touch on that a little bit more, you know, after phase one, where does it go next and how long does this usually take before it's more widely available to people. Absolutely. So yeah, usually it starts with the phase one, which is typically a dose escalation study. Okay. So we start with the lower dose and then gradually work the way up, potentially after a few patients are treated, a group of data safety monitoring committee of some sort would review that, make sure it's safe, then gradually bump up to the next level and, you know, kind of rinse and repeat until we get to the intended dose that we aim for. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's the goal of the phase one, to really have an idea of safety and safe dosing. Okay. And phase one and early phase two are typically not randomized studies. So oftentimes, you know, patients will ask, well, am I going to get a sugar pill or a placebo? 
Mm-hmm. For phase one studies, that's not usually the case. And for early phase two studies, that's not usually the case. So they're getting the actual treatment. Correct. Yes. And so in a phase two study, the goal is to understand early efficacy. So get an early glimpse on does this work properly? Mm-hmm. And number two, get a deeper dive into the safety profile of a drug. So a phase two study, if it's an early phase two study, so a phase two A, for example, it would typically be just a straight study of, you know, X number of patients getting treated with drug X and looking for early efficacy and more safety. Mm -hmm. And then a later phase two is kind of creeps into that phase three stage where you're really trying to understand, does this drug work? And in order to understand that, these studies are often randomized studies where patients are randomized to either, you know, the drug being evaluated or the treatment being evaluated, I should say, Mm -hmm. versus the standard of care, be it a placebo or other drug. You know, it's just comparing what's currently done to what the new treatment would be. Okay. That randomized study is usually in a phase three or sometimes a late phase two or something that we call a phase two B. Okay. So it's a little bit of a dual edged sword when we're talking to our patients about these studies, because, you know, oftentimes patients or their families don't want to be in randomized studies. Mm-hmm. Uh, but those are the studies actually where there's more data on that given treatment. Right. On the flip side, you know, phase one studies, there are less data, but you're kind of ensured that you're going to get the drug itself. So just understanding the dynamics of that can be really daunting for people who don't do that for a day-to-day, for their day-to-day jobs. And then also just the whole process of it, you know, going through all the phases is something that takes on the order of years. And that's important for people to understand. Yeah, and it's, it's something that needs to happen to ensure that we are making treatment decisions with the proper science. Mm-hmm. But I certainly can understand how that can be frustrating as, of course, we all want to move the ball forward as rapidly as possible, but we want to make sure that we balance that by doing it with the right science. Mm-hmm. It is important for people to understand because for as much as clinical trials can be extremely effective for patients and their loved ones, uh, when it comes to brain cancer, we do know that sometimes there is a ticking clock attached to that. And so that worry and that fear that they have is justified. But it's so promising on the other side of that to see drugs like this that have so much potential and so much promise and to know that there are things that are being worked on by various experts like yourself and other doctors who are just so passionate about finding ways to treat brain cancer and to increase that longevity uh, for patients because that is that is an ultimate goal uh, is to really get past that strive for five um, to really make it where it's a chronic disease and not life-threatening. Absolutely. And so this is extremely important work that you guys are doing. Um, When you are doing these clinical trials and it does move into like a phase one, a phase two, how do patients get in 
to such a trial? How would you, how do you choose people to be part of those phases? Yeah. So, so one, we take patients from all over and we have, we've had patients fly in from all over the country to be a part of clinical trials. So patients can get in by reading and understanding the study. And then also they have to meet a set of eligibility criteria. Okay. So it's a large scope probably to go over in one podcast, but it's, it's essentially going over things like, is this patient a recurrent glioblastoma, for example? Does this patient need a surgery? Yes or no. Is this patient healthy enough to go on this treatment? Does this patient have good cardiac or heart health? And, and there's various lab works also that we look at. So we want to roll out the red carpet, of course, for everyone to be on a clinical trial, but we want to make sure that from a scientific perspective, that the correct patients are being enrolled. And so typically this is something that your doctor should go over with you Mm -hmm. and your doctor can help you decide whether or not a clinical trial is correct for you. Okay. For some caregivers uh, specifically, they're doing a lot of the legwork when it comes to figuring out the best path for their loved one. Is there a place for them? Let's say the doctor is not aware of your study, for example. How would a caregiver find information on current clinical studies and trials that might be recruiting uh, so that they can bring the information to their doctor? How would they find that? So there's a few different ways. Probably at the top of the list is clinicaltrials.gov. Okay. And it's a website that essentially lists all registered clinical trials. So you really, if you're going to be on a clinical trial, you want it to be one that is registered through this regulated system. And so you can type, you can go to this website, clinicaltrials.gov, and type in glioblastoma or recurrent glioblastoma or brain metastases, meningioma, whatever it is mm-hmm. that you're looking for, and it'll spit out a whole bunch of studies. And then it, it takes some work to kind of maneuver it. And you can click, for example, on recruiting studies versus not recruiting studies. And you can see which studies are actually actively looking for patients based on that. You can actually sort it based on geography. So say, for example, you live in the Midwest and you want to just look on the map on areas that you could say clinics that you could drive to. You can really narrow it down based on that. And each of those trials has a contact person listed on the trials.gov website too. So you can reach out directly and say, this is where I'm at. Can I meet with one of the doctors at your institute to see if I could potentially qualify? So usually when you reach out, the doctors are going to need to know a lot more information and they're probably going to need to see you in a clinic visit to establish whether or not you would be a candidate or your loved one would be a candidate. So it's not something as simple as they can get a yes or no answer just on the phone. Yeah, I would say the likelihood of that is quite low. And that's important for people to understand. And so now anybody can go to clinicaltrials.gov and access that information. They don't need to be a doctor or a professional. They don't have to have a password. They can get access to this information. Absolutely. Yep. It's just publicly available information because you are required to register your clinical trial because you want it to be available to all. Okay. That's extremely important. I would love to know, given the type of work that you do and how serious and and heavy this work can be, how do you decompress when 
you're in this type of work uh, 24 hours a day? I think it's a really important question and one that is a constant work in progress for me. I have some short, easy answers, but then I think there's overarching themes to it. So I enjoy running. I've always enjoyed fitness. And so I'm, I'm a runner. I like to bike uh, or just work out in general. And I have uh, two little ones at home that are six and four years old. I am a boy mom. and they, they are definitely decompressors themselves. And we laugh a lot. Um, actually I have three boys if you include my husband, but (laughs) (laughs) um, that's a huge part of it. And for me, it's just laughing a lot. And for me, I I get that living in a home with three boys. I also love having time with my girlfriends. It, It sounds so simplistic, but it's probably one of the most therapeutic things for me is just having, having a solid girls night and missing out on that through COVID times was a little bit rough. I didn't realize how much I relied on it as my sort of, as my therapy really. And so getting that back in an outdoor sense and in other safe ways has been really wonderful. And I'm, I'm not shy to, to get a massage or a facial when I need a little me time as well. Yes, absolutely. I 100% agree with that. <laughs> so yeah, those are, those are just some of the ways. But I do think it's in general, like kind of the overarching theme to it is it's a work in progress, right? And we always have to, I find that I, I do neglect it sometimes and I have to keep myself in check. And it's really great to be surrounded by people who help keep that in check for me. Um, so my husband, my friends, um, the nurse practitioner I work with, she and I are very close, um, and she she can kind of sniff it on me when I might need a break or just an unwind. And so I I just so appreciate the the mirrors in my life, like the people who mm-hmm. reflect, who kind of also help keep my my mental health in check, if you will. <laughs> right. Now you touched on something that I I would love to just explore a tiny bit, and that's the pandemic and and the year of COVID. How did that impact the work that you do and the study um, and, and how you do decompress? Um, I, I can't imagine it's been an easy year. Yeah. I mean, thankfully, from a clinical trial perspective, um, yes, there was some slowdown, but but nothing of substance. So we were, you know, we we ended up publishing through the pandemic, and and the science didn't stop. Thankfully, good. I think that there were a lot of other impacts, though. I mean, just the way that I practice, um, I didn't realize how how much proximity mattered to me on so many levels. You know, um, I I am a hand holder when I, you know, when my patients are going through things and. I'm a hugger oh. and uh, just in, again, in my personal life and professional life, I'm, uh, these are just all the things that I am that I, I, I kind of always knew that I was, but boy did not being able to do it really remind me of how important that is to me because at the end of the day, you know, yeah, sure. We're patients, we're caregivers, we're doctors, we're nurses, we're everyone, but, but we're just people and we're people who want to have that closeness, particularly when we're in the trenches with someone or going through something really intense or really like what I think some of these conversations are, which is really intimate, you know, and I never thought twice, you know, grabbing someone's hand or celebrating a great scan with a big squeeze, you know, and uh, 
I, I think breaking down those barriers in the clinic are really important to, to develop those relationships and, and just something that I do honestly, I'm subconsciously, you know, it's just a part of who I've always been. And so not being able to, to do that is tough and having some conversations over telehealth visits over my computer is tough, you know, cause again, we are social beings as human beings and we want to be together and we want to be together, not just over a screen, but in real life, in real, in real flesh, like holding each other's hand and, and embracing when we need to. And it's so important to stress that because that is something that even my husband and I had, had noticed, you know, having been diagnosed pre pandemic and then having to go through everything during the pandemic and the difference, we are such social beings and that physical connection, that physical proximity makes all the difference in the world, especially when you're dealing with, you know, diseases like this and having to walk, you know, through the trenches. Um, that's so vital that, uh, that you, that you explain that and talk about that. And, and for some doctors, you know, they may not have noticed such a difference, but I think it's so touching to hear how much that matters to you and the impact that that has on the patients that you work with and the families that you're with on a day-to-day basis. I, I can only imagine that it just makes all the difference in the world. Yeah. It's, it's so nice to start to get some of that back. You know, I had clinic yesterday and, you know, my vaccinated patients, which is pretty much most, if not everyone down the list was just great to say like, you know, let's hug it out. (laughs) Yeah. And we can now. (laughs) Yeah. And we can. And it's funny because, you know, I think we of course always appreciated it, but I think the appreciation for it is for me just even higher. That's amazing. Before we go, I would love for you to tell our listeners where they can find more information about you. If other doctors or caregivers may have an interest in uh, exploring the work that you do a little bit more, if you are seeing new patients, if you'd like to let people know that, but where they can find more information about you would be great. Absolutely. So if you Google uh, Northwestern Feinberg uh, faculty profiles with my last name. Okay. And on there, you can also find um, how to get a hold of me and my clinic and and um, call our clinic to be a new patient. And I'm absolutely accepting new patients. So I'm happy to, to help in any way that I can. Okay. And then there's the Robert H. Lurie Cancer Center. So the Robert H. Lurie Comprehensive Cancer Center at Northwestern. So that's the name of our cancer center. And on there, we have a lot of our studies listed. Perfect. So you can find our clinical trials through that. Okay. So our brain tumor institute is the Mulnati Brain Tumor Institute mm-hmm. at the Robert H. Lurie Comprehensive Cancer Center. I know it's a little bit of a mouthful, but our brain tumor institute also has a landing page that has some trials listed on it as well. And you're also welcome to reach out to our clinic staff and our clinical trial research staff as well. And all their informations are on those websites. Perfect. So for anybody who's listening, I will have all of this information up on our website, thegameongliopodcast.com, brainsforthecure.org, and we will have it up on our Facebook page as well as our Instagram feed. So you will be able to find all of these websites there and ways to contact uh, Dr. Kumtaker. Thank you so much for joining us today and for giving us this amazing information um, and being part of this podcast. I 
truly appreciate your time and the passion for which you have to help find cures and new treatments for uh, diseases and cancers like brain cancer. It uh, it just means the world to me and I'm sure to so many others that we have people like you on the front lines of this. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening, and we will be right back. I'd like to thank Dr. Priya Kumtaker for being here with me today and discussing the phase zero clinical study that she has been working on at Northwestern University. It's extremely important for all of us to be aware of the different clinical trials and studies that are taking place, not just nationally, but internationally. They could prove extremely vital in our efforts to fight and treat brain cancer. The ultimate goal is to make this a chronic condition instead of a deadly disease. And the hope is that one day we will have a cure. We just have to keep fighting for it. If you'd like to learn more about the clinical study that Dr. Kumtaker talked about today, you can find information about it on our website, thegameongliopodcast.com. You can also find information about it on our partner's website, brainsforthecure.org. You can also visit her bio page at Northwestern University. Tune in again next month as we sit down with a guest who was a young widow and a caregiver. She joins us to tell us about the journey that they went through, his original diagnosis, and she has some interesting updates about how the journey got her through to where she is now and the unique and special way that she's keeping his memory alive. You won't want to miss this episode. Until next month, thank you so much for listening to the Game on Glio podcast. Thank you so much for joining us this week on the Game on Glio podcast. Make sure to visit our website, thegameongliopodcast.com, where you can subscribe to the show via Podbean, iTunes, Google, Apple, Spotify, or via RSS, so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd love to hear what you think. Please post a review, give us a rating, or simply share with others so that they can listen to the show in the future. That'll help us too. If you like this show, you might want to check us out on Facebook at Game on Glio or on Instagram at Game on Glio Podcast. We look forward to seeing you again next month for another exciting episode of the Game on Glio Podcast. Brains for the Cure is an innovative online resource to help brain tumor patients, survivors, and caregivers become advocates, educate themselves, and connect with others throughout each phase of their journey. We are proud to partner with the Game on Glio podcast. Visit brainsforthecure.org to learn more.